Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as an additional content warning, this week's chat will discuss PTSD and child abuse. For this week's episode, my guests and I are chatting about Jennifer Kent's directorial debut, The Babadook, in which single mother Amelia, played by Essie Davis, grapples with the shocking death of her husband and being left to raise their son Samuel on her own. Further exacerbating an already fraught situation is the arrival of a strange book titled Mr. Babadook that introduces the fractured family to a monstrous force. And joining me this week to chat monsters and motherhood is returning friend of the show, Kate. Kate, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. I'm so pleased to be here for this, um, to discuss the seminal film. Us being friends on Twitter and kind of like getting to know each other with our uh, mutual uh, strange brand of humor and whatnot, it's kind of ironic that, you know, we've picked two horror movies now. The last time I had you on, we were chatting about um, The Night House, right? And now we're talking about Duke, two films that use horror, but they're using that like genre and whatnot to dabble in some more taboo subject matter, right? Subject matter that is not something that a lot of people talk about, you know, in society, even if maybe the conversation surrounding it has uh, been a little more accessible uh, within the last few years. But yeah, you know, we'll try to uh, we'll try to talk about another dark film with a little, hopefully a little levity while not under or downplaying sort of the seriousness of some of the things that are dabbled in in the film. Well said, Jay. Yeah, I thought it was surprising that both the films deal with women not mothers because the night house she wasn't a mom right no right. um but they both lost their partners and dealing with grief i've got a whole theory on babadook so you want me to jump into it <laughs> yeah i mean let's uh let's kind of start with i mean how do you usually find the portrayal of mothers or just women in general in horror right i guess this chat like you had said will be a little more focused on like the portrayal of motherhood and how that ends up being one of the really defining elements of the film that make it such a standout. But like in general, I suppose, how do you find that usually that subject matter is handled in uh, whether it be horror or, you know, film in general? For sure. So first of all, I'm not nearly an expert in that for that question. I would probably get a C plus on an essay that I wrote (laughs) for a film film analysis class. But, you know, I think I would argue that the portrayal of women and mothers particularly over time kind of evolves with the culture. And so recently we've seen more films where um, the the kind of the stereotype of the evil mother or stepmother has a more modern take on it versus, you know, when you think of moms initially, I think of like Psycho and the the mummified mother who... I don't know. There's always a, the moms always give a reason for the poor behavior sometimes. So um, we had talked earlier before we started um, recording about hereditary. And that's another story with a mom who has some challenges. Um, But I think (laughs) there's so much, I mean, think about fear and what is so common in our, for humans is to, I mean, what is the most safe place? It's normally with your mother. So what a rich field of fear if you put a, if your mother's dangerous or I don't know the name of the movie. Maybe you've seen it. And it's literally like the kids are like, you're not my mom. Like it's the mom comes back after an accident. And it, I don't know. I can't even think of the name. It was like within the past five years. I think it was like a European film, but it was just all. Of, what is it? Was it good night mommy or good night mother or something where the mother um, goes in for surgery and then comes back and the kids are like very paranoid about whether or not it is their mother. I think. Yes. Yes. Um, So I don't know. Yeah. This one, I just was, and I had never seen it. I had not seen Babadook, even though I had heard about it since it came out 2014. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Yep. I had no idea that I was going to be so judgmental about a fictional character's parenting. It was as if this woman did everything wrong. Like she did, (laughs) (laughs) 
so it's hilarious too because i had no idea that first of all this movie was going to be so much about grief and parenting mm. and that's what i do i'm a grief counselor and a mother and i just think she's a really bad parent honestly well, th- <laughs> well th- this is why I'm i glad think to she have caused you. all of it okay jay she <laughs> she created the babadook and anyway go ahead well this is why i'm glad to have you on because you can you know offer an insight that uh i myself would not have but at the same time like we can talk about the different ways that we interpreted the movie, right? Because I think that it was a movie that initially when I saw it, and it seems like now it's been forever ago since this movie came out. But, you know, when I initially saw it, I viewed it as much more of this like literal thing, right? It's like, okay, yeah, they're being cursed. There's this monster. But in revisiting the movie, I kind of have picked up on just how ambiguous some elements of the movie are. Um, And that's something that I think makes it even, not that I didn't like it the first time I saw it, but I think that the ambiguity tied into everything makes it that much more of an interesting movie to talk about. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm always down to chat about whatever kind of movies with people or whatever their takes on them are. But I find that with something like this that can have multiple interpretations, like it just makes for a more interesting conversation overall, just in terms of it maybe not being as black and white as I initially thought it was. And, you know, maybe you th- see it more as being black and white, but it's it'll be interesting to kind of get to the bottom of it. But Um, You know, one thing that you said that stood out to me in terms of like the how mothers are portrayed in films and how that's changed over the years, like over the last five to 10 years, I would say we've seen more of an influx of female directors that are able to, you know, really have a lot more ownership over, especially with I'm thinking within the horror genre, having more ownership over the types of stories that they want to tell and being able to, you know, put a piece of them into these, you know, female-led films that a male director couldn't. And The Babadook, I think, still stands as like a really strong uh, showing of that Um, and kind of just further reinforces like the importance of female directors that get to, you know, not only write, but then be in the director's chair of those characters, Um, which, you know, when you think about a film like The Babadook, I feel that like her handling of a lot of maybe taboo sides of parenting or grief that most people don't want to talk about it. It's sold in a way that feels more genuine. I think, you know, mm-hmm. than if it was like a guy directing it, maybe, um, you know, not to say that there haven't been good male directors that have done female uh, focused films and whatnot, but just the idea that like you're able to make it seem maybe more genuine uh, when clearly the creative force behind the film has a piece of themselves, maybe, or a piece of themselves that they can relate to in these characters, maybe. Absolutely. And I thought what was so interesting is a majority, I mean, outside of, I mean, do we assume the Baba Duke is, has a gender? Maybe he's male. Um, but the son is male. And then that kind of like weird love interest guy at her work. Other than that, all of the key players are female, like the neighbor Mm -hmm. and her and her sister and the, and the female cousin. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I always really enjoy female led stuff because I think it's just, I guess, because I grew, I mean, I'm 40 years old. I've grown up with, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s where it was very hyper masculinity. You know, think about like the height of horror when I was growing up was like the Saw franchise. You know what I mean? Where there's like very limited subtlety. There's like, <laughs> right. Like, um, or uh, I'm thinking of uh, Silence of the Lambs, like that mm. whole series where um, but I, I do think what you get with female-led horror maybe maybe is more of the the psychological horror. I'll, I'll just I'll just start. Can I talk about the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Let's okay. get into it. So the scariest scene for me didn't have the Babadook in it. It was in the middle of her breakdown, and she's in the bathtub, fully clothed. Mm -hmm. And then brings her son in. And I was watching it with my male partner and he and and we're both parents and we're like, no, no, (laughs) we were were certain she was Mm going to drown her son. Right. And the fact that they didn't 
but they just teased it. I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God. Now that wasn't anything like there. The other thing I noticed about this film, there was no music. There were no musical cues. Like there was nothing in the soundtrack to let you know where we were headed, which I mm-hmm. thought was disturbing also. Not, I don't know. It just was different, I guess. Well, it makes it feel like it's any other day, right? There's a sort of normalcy in the way that all the scenes are kind of set, even though, you know, of course, it becomes more and more overtly supernatural a lot further into the film you get. But like presenting everything as if it is just like a casual day in the life with no real musical cues early on or anything like that to kind of like indicate where this is going. I think it adds a lot of layers of tension to scenes that otherwise like if there was, I feel like, you know, cause I had that same reaction when I was rewatching it and prep for this, where I was just like, not really remembering the course of the film. Cause you know, just overabundance of watching too many movies probably, but just getting to that point and being like, does she try to drown him in this scene? Do I forget this moment and something like that? And you're right. Like not having a real sense of where, what direction that could go in just creates this very organic, you know, tension and terror in a way that feels very earned. And it does really bleed into the idea that the film is, I, I at least I think like the potential ambiguity of the film and it being like, is this all in her head? The psychological aspect, is there actually a supernatural force or is that sort of like a manifestation that she uses to blame this abuse that her son is encountering or being the victim of? Um, which I thought, the more I thought about the movie, like it just gives it so many different interpretations on every scene then. I almost started like second guessing my own interpretations Mm. of things, which I love. That's interesting because I felt like this was a real straightforward metaphor for, Mm. um, of the avoidance of grief and what Mm -hmm. it does to you. Like to me, it was just the Babadook is grief and he's going to stick with you. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. you, he's going to be in your basement and you have to fucking <laughs> feed him. And right. <laughs> like, and you, you're afraid of him because the throughout, throughout the movie, um, what was the boy's name? I'm not going to Samuel, remember. Samuel. Um, he, w- he never lied. You know, he wasn't mm-hmm. making up anything. He was, he was trying to have a conversation with his mother Mm-hmm. or anyone about his dead father like he was just so pure and real and she just kept pushing him down like psychologically and not attending to him and just mm. telling him to shut up and the, i mean and i think that was the the first scene where you kind of see her um so he like caresses her face a specific way and she's like don't do that like mm-hmm. <sighs> Well, no wonder your kid's acting weird. Like, you're a weirdo, you know? I don't know. Maybe I've just been around the block too long as a therapist, and things like this are very <laughs> obvious to me. But, like, if you're not nice to your kid, your kid's going to act out. Like, mm-hmm. And I thought it was hilarious that her answer initially to everything was like, I'll just have a bigger conversation with him. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I think, you know, the ambiguity that I was referencing is more about whether or not the Babadook is like a, a literal physical manifestation of that, or if it is her way of coping with the fact that, you know, all the things that you just mentioned, like her son having those severe reactions and him, you know, not being able to grapple with his own grief and whatnot is because she herself obviously can't do that and hasn't taken those steps. I think at one point, she says to her sister or cousin where she's like, yeah, it's been seven years. Like you need to get on with your life basically. And the idea that like her son isn't going to have the ramifications or show the ramifications of, you know, acting out in these different things. Cause he himself has not dealt with it. Well, how could he deal with it if she hasn't been able to, or Bingo. you know, taken those steps uh, herself, which, you know, I think that was going to be my next question for you in terms of like, how is, how do you find the portrayal of, motherhood in the Baba Duke itself. But, you know, we've kind of already been chatting about that, right? The idea that early on, a lot of it is subtle, right? It's kind of just showing the fact that she has this resentment towards her child, right? Because she herself has not dealt with the larger inner ramifications of her husband dying and that trauma that it ends up kind of rearing its ugly head in the way she behaves 
more so than what she necessarily says early on, right? I guess the more that the film kind of progresses, it gets to the point where she's saying all this horrific shit to him and then, you know, quite literally at one point tries to kill him at the end of the film. But, you know, I was really impressed again on a rewatch just in terms of the way that the film is able to really scale and pace the exploration of this sort of psychological aspect and doesn't overly rely on you know, having the Babadook in your face right from the jump, right? That might be the inclination of some where it's like, well, I've got this creepy fucking monster. Let me just start with him. But they do a lot of legwork in getting there that I thought was really impressive. Absolutely. And I, I agree. And I I think it the more she tries to deny it, just like the more we try to deny or ignore any kind of issue in our lives it grows and it gets bigger i mean in that and at, i won't jump to the end but something i want to know is um so her husband was killed while they were driving to the hospital while she was in labor with samuel and apparently when we see at the end, we kind of get imagery of what happened to the husband, which I don't know if that is what actually happened. That is horrific. Like if that is actually <laughs> yeah. how he died, that's right. crazy. It's pretty gnarly. Um, you kind of understand why she's so fucked up. Yes, absolutely. And why Samuel, who that young actor has, I hope he grows into his looks. You know what I mean? <laughs> like <laughs> he's got a face for film and mm. Um, what science is telling us is that when babies are still inside their mother and mothers experience trauma, that impacts the kid. Mm -hmm. So even though he didn't necessarily experience that trauma by witnessing his father's head split in half, mm -hmm. he's still going to carry that with him. And then to know, so he, she had not allowed him to celebrate his birthday on his actual birthday. Right. And he knows that, that he knows when his birthday is, he knows he can't celebrate it on that day. I mean, how invalidating for your existence, you know? And what I thought was so awesome is at the end, you have Samuel who is actually a really resilient kid who, I mean, he's got a lot of internal wisdom and just is like, yeah, we did. My dad died on my birthday. Like he just, mm -hmm. you know, how kids are they? Like straight up say it, and everyone mm -hmm. is so uncomfortable with like just clear cut communication, and like the people are so afraid of the truth. And she, at the end, I love that she finally, like when the Baba Duke was in the basement, when she had finally uh, grappled with the grief and struggled with her grief, and then she's like, yes. Um, I don't know. I'm not, ex I'm not talking about it very eloquently, but, um, I no. I think you're nailing a lot of, <laughs> you're nailing a lot of the same feelings that I have about the movie. And just in terms of, you know, capturing the fact that while Samuel himself, you know, did not experience that trauma, he did by proxy essentially because of the ramifications, right. Of how his mother, how that impacted his mother's life and how that essentially impacts her relationship with him. Right. Cause whether or not she says it early on, she resents him on a certain level for, you know, not having anybody to blame, uh, you know, maybe the person that crashed into them or I, I can't remember now if they referenced that there was a car crash or whether it was that he crashed because it was raining out. I can't remember. But yeah. either way, like he there's no one else to blame for what happened other than the fact that, well, she was pregnant and she was giving in birth. So she has to blame him in her own mind. That's like the only person that she could, which, you know, that kind of bleeds into what I was saying earlier about like the fact that Jennifer Kent really is not afraid to kind of lean into the maybe taboo side of parenting or motherhood in the sense that it's like, well, to varying degrees, right? In this film, it is being the most extreme where it's like, okay, I have to, she has to blame him because there's nobody else to blame or you know, the film does touch upon certain things like a lack of privacy when you have children, the fact that your time is not always going to be your own, which, you know, early on in the movie, there's a moment where Amelia, like, basically is in bed and, 
is alone and horny and wants to pleasure herself. And then what happens? The son like bursts into the room, which, you know, me not being a parent, like I could very easily foresee the fact that like children don't understand boundaries and they're just going to burst in the room at any given moment, whether or not they should be awake or asleep. So that was also one of the scariest. That was one of the scariest (laughs) scenes. Right. (laughs) She very succinctly and without, you know, I think this is also the best sign of a filmmaker that, you know, maybe has some of their own experiences being imparted into the movie, right? In that it's a scene that doesn't linger very long, right? It's kind of just a matter of fact thing, but you get the point of it or the gist of it within, you know, 90 seconds of that scene. Um, And, you know, for somebody like me, that's not a parent, you're like, oh, that's a fear of parents, right? Having to always be aware or be knowledgeable of like, what door is locked? Are they awake? This or that. But then, you know, for a parent themselves, the, uh, the horror of a kid running in maybe on you in the act and whatnot is a different type of horror. But, um, you know, I think with a film like this, the fact that it's able to encompass a lot of different layers, maybe of parenting and grief and trauma and all of these things, like the fact that it's a little longer than 90 minutes and it doesn't necessarily like repeat a lot of those beats. Mm-hmm. I just find it to be, you know, it was a uh, it was adapted from a short film, I guess, that she did that was called Monster, which is the same concept, but it was like five minutes long. But the fact that she was able to adapt to that into a feature film and there isn't really a lot of downtime or there's not a lot of kind of like beating the same drum on certain parenting uh, viewpoints or, you know, views on trauma and these things and just kind of like has a very brisk pace to it. Mm-hmm. It was just even more impressive on a rewatch, I thought. Absolutely. I I had not I deliberately did not read anything before I watched it. And um, I was surprised when they were British. For some reason, I thought this was going to and they're not British. They're uh, Australian. Australia. Yep. Yeah. Um, which goes to show that I can't tell accents. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> the only I reason su- I knew the difference, to be fair, was because I had seen it before and I researched it. Ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. No. And then I was so and I didn't know until after that it was a female director, which I thought was so neat. And I I I tend to really like um, horror films set in Australia or there's something about Australians and horror. There's this I don't know. They I feel like there's. I think sometimes it's more grotesque, but I think there's a subtlety. There's something about growing. I don't know. I don't have anything more thoughtful to say about it, but I, you know, I'll make a general, I guess, statement about like foreign horror in general, whereas, you know, compared to American horror, it seems that, you know, maybe it's a commentary on like people's social uh, or not social, but their attention span, right? Americans, I think for the most part, have a much shorter attention span. So if you don't give audiences, American audiences, what they're expecting sort of right out the gate, you might begin to lose them. And you kind of have this conversation of like tears of horror and whatnot that people maybe will have sometimes. But, you know, with foreign horror, a lot of times I feel like there's a lot more leg room early on that's spent to either developing characters or establishing a theme or almost like a thesis before you delve more into the supernatural side of things. You know, there's exceptions always, but I don't know. That's always been my take on uh, on foreign horror that I've seen, at least. And I think this movie is a good representation of that. No, absolutely. That's a really great way to put it, because that's what we see. You know, we. We see it get worse before it gets worse kind of oh my Mm -hmm. gosh and the whole part of her in the there were just some things that didn't make so the baba do the um the bug sound that comes with him that Mm -hmm. was interesting and that's just kind of a creepy element they didn't really explain that other than what are your thoughts on that this is kind of part of the ambiguity that i kind of was viewing the lens give or take that i was viewing the second uh watch of this movie through in that like the baba duke himself it seems to be that I saw it as being like a representation of the boogeyman that all kids are scared of, right? Because, you know, from the beginning of the movie, Samuel is like very preoccupied with there's going to be monsters in the house and kind of like establishing that mother-son relationship, right? He wakes her up in the middle of the night, oh, there's a monster under my bed, that kind of very classical and relatable adolescent experience, I suppose. But, you know, a lot of the traits of the Babadook they seem to be reflective of the couple or the son and mother's life in different facets, right? I mean, 
early or later in the film, like she starts seeing or hallucinating like cockroach infestations and things like that. And, you know, the Babadook himself has a cockroach sound and the way he scutters and these things. And the reality is, is like they live in poverty. So my interpretation of that the second time around was like, well, chances are their house has got roaches in it or something because, you know, they can't afford an exterminator or this and that. Things have fallen into repair. The fact that she's a single mother, she doesn't have the time or the funds, you know, based on the fact that she's uh, about to be fired, it seems, from her job and whatnot. And she's taking real world issues or things that she's dealing with and it's being manifested in the Babadook in different ways. Um, So like, yeah, he's represented by cockroaches in some ways because, well, they probably live in a house that's filled with cockroaches or that's why later in the movie, like there's a hole behind the refrigerator that she sees. And then when they're driving, right, she sees cockroaches crawling on her and all these things. So I don't know. That was my interpretation. At least. Yeah. No, the other thing was, is um, so in the basement where I guess, see this, see how it lines up with grief because all of the, the, the father, the husband stuff is in the basement. And so then they had, so he must have been some kind of musician, right? They don't ever really say, or do they? Well, yeah, I think he is He is a musician because there's a scene. He was a musician. Yeah, he was, he was a musician. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was a musician because um, not only does Samuel, you know, set up those little concerts for stuffed animals and things in the basement with all the instruments and music notes, but later in the movie, there's a scene where Amelia's in bed and she's she's like cradling basically a violin. That's and Samuel right. tries to he touches it or he tries to grab it and she like snaps at him and says, like, don't touch that, basically, which then, you know, he scurries across the other side of the room. But yeah, you know, it's interesting the little details about the husband that are given, but not a lot of time is spent really being told about him. I feel like we're shown more because of like some of the mannerisms of the son, right? The father or the husband basically comes out in the mannerisms of the son, right? And I think even the old lady next door that babysits comments on that, right? At one point she says something along the lines of like, well, he's just like his father. He speaks his mind. He doesn't have a filter. And then, you know, obviously he's obsessed with magic. His father was a performer, entertainer. So it's a good way to avoid, you know, a lot of needless exposition probably. Yeah. And then all the weird imagery on the television those videos were so creepy yeah and then that's the only time you see kind of like the the whole the whole babadook that's the only time you see the whole picture you never i don't think ever see him when he's in the house you just kind of get half of him or part of him mm-hmm. um i don't know i liked that part yeah <laughs> Well, that part, I think, kind of like further fueled my, you know, my new take on the movie where it was more about like she's picking pieces from her own life and making it this physical manifestation that can excuse her taking her grief out on her child. Right. And that, you know, she's watching that old clip of a movie and it's like, well, there's a creepy as fuck monster from some movie from, you know, whatever, the 20s or the 30s or something like that. And so that's going to be the manifestation of it. But then, you know the specific ways in which it, you know, it preys upon kids or, you know, the fact that like it has some cockroach characteristics, like taking a lot of different elements from her real life and, you know, creating, and this kind of goes into the psychological aspect of the movie, taking those real world elements of her life and putting it into a fictitious one. But, you know, the fuel of that being like her own kid's imagination, right. And kind of like his obsession with monsters. And she's like, Oh yeah, there's a monster that's doing all this when, I kind of took away from it this time, like, well, it's mostly her or it's only her. And this is like the, her ability to like rationalize what she's doing almost. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No. Yes. And the fact that the kid sees it before her, just like mm-hmm. most children, they'll, they'll see what's wrong with their parent before their parent realizes it. And it would be a really interesting um, character study for a psychopathology class. So normally when, we are presented with poor parenting. Um, the average human will internalize it and um, think that they're bad, right? The, the, the child will act out as a bully. But what we see in the case with Samuel is 
he has not internalized it. He sees the, ex- he's externalized it. And it's almost healthier for Samuel in the long run. Like it gives me hope for Samuel that he's not going to be some like real strange weirdo that like, I don't know. I just, I liked that because had the Babadook, like, so I could see another another horror film out of this same context where it's just the disintegration of the mother and the child into themselves. And then you've got something like Psycho, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like, <laughs> there's no externalization. It's just all jacked up internalization. Anyway, so there's some thoughts. <laughs> It's a healthier, uh, maybe a way to cope, right? And that you're able to get that out because otherwise, you know, it kind of would be, well, maybe, you know, thinking about like the cycle of trauma and grief and these things. And it's like, well, if you keep it all internally, then, you know, children learn from their parents essentially with coping mechanisms and things like that. So the idea that if he didn't have the personality that seems to be so different than his mother, where he's able to, you know, be very expressive. And that comes out in like being very eccentric or overly obsessive. And, you know, he has, there's that great scene where uh, the school calls the, calls in Amelia and is like, Oh, we had another incident with him. And she's like, yeah, he brought a, what was it? A crossbow to school basically. And the headmaster basically keeps calling him the boy. And Amelia, you know, finally has that moment where she's like, his name is Samuel, uh, which is a really great moment. I think before, you know, she starts uh, lashing out a bit more at him, uh, putting it lightly. But, and that's how she, and that's how she found out that the Baba Duke was her dead husband, is because the dead husband referred to him as the boy when they were in the basement. Yeah, I'm just tying it all in, Jay. Just yeah. tying it all. In. <laughs> You're connecting great points. I mean, that Thank is you. that's the creepy that's the creepy part of that scene later in the film, right? When she goes into the basement and it's what basically like snaps her out of her days, right? Is that, oh, this isn't actually the, she sees through the facade, right? It's not my husband. It's the Duke that's using my grief and my pain and basically creating a manifestation of the dead husband and whatnot, um, which again, I think is, they don't like beat that drum too many times, right? I think there's one or two instances where she sees the husband or the hallucination of the husband, but it's kind of like each of those instances is very memorable and they don't kind of like overly rely on that in a way Mm -hmm. that I think is really good. The relationship between the two of them and it being this very poignant kind of roller coaster up and down. I mean, you also have Samuel like exploring grief in his own way, right? Where you have obviously the mother that's lashing out and saying things that she says to him are increasingly awful. The fact that like she's more than likely not feeding him and taking care of him later in the end of the movie. Um, But he has a great line, I think, Samuel, in that, you know, they start having more of a butting heads moment of him like expressing how he feels, which I think is, there isn't enough of that, I think, in the movie because so much of it is focused on like his behaviors and how that is being the root of a trigger for her in a lot of ways. But he has a couple of moments where he like actually stands up for himself and says what he's feeling um, other than, you know, just kind of speaking his mind at awkward moments. But he has this great quote where he's, he shouts at her and he says, uh, he's my father. You don't own him. Uh, Which I thought was really interesting because it's showing like his own frustration with, you know, her essentially being like, you can't go in the basement. That's his part of the house. And, don't touch anything or don't even mention him essentially, which I thought was interesting because, you know, you get to finally see him express himself in a way that is not quite as uh, behavior based or, you know, more eccentric uh, for right. lack of a better phrase, him building catapults or crossbows and things like that. Right. Like imagine how much less destruction and behavioral issues he engage in if his mother would just like, let him talk about things and Mm. not shut him down all the time. And like at the beginning or middle, I don't remember when it was. And he was like, I love you, mommy. And she says, me too. Mm. It's like, come on lady. Like, like who said like that in and of itself. I mean, you can't get more disjointed and, Oh, I didn't like it. I just didn't like it. Well, you know, I think that kind of feeds into what is so unique about this movie. And that's why I sort of 
started the episode by asking you, like, how do you view motherhood typically portrayed in horror movies and whatnot? Because I find that this movie is kind of taking it in a different direction or maybe a lesser seen direction, right? It's either typically mothers in horror, either like maniacal right from the jump and they're kind of very much the characterization or kind of like cartoonish in how insane they are or how mad they are or something like that. Or it's in the other direction where they are so over, they are overly protective, right? To maybe almost a fault in terms of maybe stifling the child or just in terms of like, that is such a heavy focus of like, well, they have to be protective at all times. And the fact that that almost interferes maybe with sort of the plot progression or whatnot. But with this movie, it kind of finds a place in the middle, right? And that when it escalates, it escalates into, you know, her becoming possessed and being more aggressive and saying some of what she maybe feels internally or a lot of what she feels internally, which I thought was an interesting arc because you don't see that a lot in horror where it kind of grows into that in different ways. I had just a couple thoughts. Um, I thought the love interest, the guy at work was weird. I didn't Probably. see the purpose of him. I guess just to show I didn't I didn't see the purpose of him and his like very passive misogynistic jokes like yeah that was that one <laughs> that one instance was kind of weird I'll be honest cuz you know overall like I thought his character was interesting just for that one scene where it shows like she uh, it's further an instance of her like laying blame at the feet of her child who doesn't deserve it right cuz she goes around saying like oh he's sick I have to leave work and then she just goes and has an ice cream to herself, uh, basically in that scene. And then you get that awesome moment where Sam, where he comes by the house and he gives Samuel a toy. He's like, "Oh, my mom bought me toys when I felt sick." And Samuel, like matter of factly, is like, "I'm not sick," and she won't let me have a birthday or cake. And then just like runs away and has this awkward ass moment, which I loved to be honest. But yeah, like I feel like the mother is a character that is so quick to bounce off of relationships just because of, you know, how traumatized she is still and everything and doesn't clearly have a big friend group or even like much of a support system other than the old woman that lives next door that helps out. Yeah. And then she's like, clearly Robbie, I thought was supposed to be somewhat of a love interest, even though it never goes down that path really. But like the fact that she's like laughing at this like weird misogynistic joke. And then I don't know, maybe I, it was just interesting to me that a character that like is so singular, I suppose, in the way that she behaves with other people, the fact that like she's going to just take this misogynistic joke on the chin because maybe she likes this guy was kind of weird. That was my feeling. Or things were very different in Australia in 2014. <laughs> you know, <they> were... <laughs> times have changed very quickly. So they have to be fair. They have. I was going to read some of my notes that I took the first time I watched it. Uh, the, yeah, Babadook, the Babadook doesn't show himself unless you believe in him. And so then I diagnosed the Babadook is unresolved, complicated grief causing psychosis. So that's my, <laughs> that's my diagnosis. That, that's a, that's a spot on diagnosis, <laughs> I think, because it definitely, you know, that kind of informs how I view the Babadook on the second viewing. Cause you know, like I said earlier, like, when I initially saw the movie, it was much more black and white. Like, yeah, it's a supernatural being that came out of this weird book that showed up magically. But on a second viewing, it was more about seeing it as being like a literal manifestation of her grief and all of these repressed feelings and things. But it's more about her kind of like creating it as a way to kind of justify a lot of her own behavior, I felt like, before, you know... Toward, the further the film progresses, you get that scene where the Babadook quite literally like enters her, right? It goes into her mm -hmm. mouth. It becomes part of her physically. And then that almost excuses to a certain degree, like all of the horrible things she does. Cause like, oh, she's possessed, but she wasn't the best mother to begin with before that. And then, you know, the way that the, we'll talk about the ending of the film in a little bit, but you know, just overall, I found it to be a much more interesting use of an antagonist is the antagonist basically the protagonist uses to excuse a lot of the behavior or you know the the vibe around the house i guess for lack of a better word that has been allowed to be created because you know has not dealt with her own issues let alone you know how that's impacting her child absolutely and she didn't i mean 
he's acting out at school the school calls her in they suggest that he is goes one-on-one and she said it just seemed she seemed so disconnected it seemed like on the surface she really cared about samuel but was like wildly disconnected from his actual needs it was more Mm -hmm. like she's playing the role of a mother but not very motherly not very motherly yeah yeah that that scene too you know in in terms of like my own experience and life in terms of like somebody that has done that one-to-one role before um, in terms of like working with students that have extreme challenges and whatnot. That was very interesting to me. And I understood what she was saying in terms of like, well, he has enough trouble socializing, but at the same time, like your son brought a crossbow to school. (laughs) Like we need to find some common ground here because otherwise, like what's the alternative? He just doesn't go to school and then he doesn't socialize at all. Um, So that was one of those scenes that on a rewatch, I was just kind of like, uh, okay, so what is your solution to this then? But I think maybe that scene, if anything, just reinforces the fact that like she's not equipped to deal with any of the other struggles in her life because she hasn't dealt with you know the one stroke, the main roadblock essentially for her to be able to move on. At, you know, seven years later, which that line I had forgotten. I had forgotten that it was such a long period of time. But yeah, like the seven year period of not being able to move on from that or. I don't know, maybe you would never really be able to move on from an event like that, but you should be made to strides. Exactly, exactly. There's no indication that she's accepted this, that it's integrated into their life. Like, that, you know, it's just avoidance, avoidance, avoidance. There's no, there's, and that's how the shit creeps in. You know, Mm. in the real world, she would um, be addicted to something and, you know, like, have lots of who knows i mean the real world's crazier than fiction most of the time but i mean the babadook is real it just isn't a monster in real life you know she i mean she should be called by cps i mean she's not really doing anything for her behaviorally disturbed child yeah and you know i think that that's another element that i appreciate about the film in that it does not go into it doesn't go down that route, you know, where we have to deal with, because sometimes I find that in horror specifically, when you want to talk about grief or trauma or these things, there's an over-reliance to be like, well, let's have a bunch of scenes of them going up, the character going on a bender or something like that, which is definitely a real world coping device, which, you know, that's something that plenty of people that deal with those things turn to. But I'm always appreciative of filmmakers that don't feel like they have to dedicate narrative avenues to that or just a great amount of screen time to that because at this point it is basically like a played out trope half the time where it's like oh we have to get we have to nail that home where we have to have five scenes of them you know blacking out or the ramifications of that and it's like finding more creative ways to show that or a lack of coping or coping i find that's an element of these types of you know trauma ptsd films that i always appreciate something like you know the night house there might be There are actually a couple of scenes like that, but we only get one or two of them and then it moves on to how they're coping in more creative ways, whether that be, you know, narrative or just the actress or actor showing that in a performance. Yeah, I think the the Babadook itself is the coping skill and the results of a lack of it. I don't know. I, I I really liked it. I was surprised I hadn't seen it before. And I see why it's a classic. You know, it's a modern classic now. Yeah, I mean, let alone the fact that it's a directorial debut, but just how strong it is out the gate for so many of the reasons that we've mentioned. I mean, I'm curious, though, like we've been talking about Samuel and we've been talking about uh, Amelia so much. Like, what did you think of the few scenes where we see how other people interpret her behavior or his behavior? How did you think that Kent handled like other characters looking from the outside in on, you know, clearly this traumatized family. Yeah, I thought they it was, it was pretty accurate. I think people, you know, after seven years, you probably start to get judgmental. You know, if you see you see your friend or your, is it her sister? It's her sister, right? Yeah, it's her sister. It's her sister. I mean, her sister's probably been trying to help her and try to talk about it. And, and then I think it's pretty normal for everyone to just kind of get tired of spinning your wheels and not feeling like anyone's addressing the monster in the room you know right and uh i don't know i feel (laughs) the women were are are so unlikable 
but I can completely relate to that experience of like not knowing what to say to someone. And like, Mm -hmm. I thought it was relatable. I thought that, you know, initially I probably had the opinion when I saw it where I was like, oh, these characters are all so bitchy at this woman that's clearly going through a lot. But then, you know, watching it again on a second time and it's like, we've all had conversations with people where they ask for our advice and then you give them advice and then you see over the course of weeks or months and whatnot that they're not heeding that advice. And then they want to kind of like double back and ask for advice again and you give advice and then you see like, so I think that those interactions are actually pretty important in terms of the way in which, you know, it's showing the fact that like there's ownership of actions on both sides, right? Somebody that's dealing with something, you need to make strides to change certain things, especially if you're going to ask for help and then people give you solutions or tools and then you don't access them. But at the same time, it shows like people that aren't dealing with that themselves, they still don't know how to really help in a way maybe more meaningful when they haven't themselves experienced that. Right. You know what I mean? Like if somebody was to ask me, how do I get over my dead husband? I don't have a dead husband or a dead wife. So I don't really know what to say other than sort of like stock standard responses. So I can only do so much. But at the same time, like if you keep having and imagine having that conversation for like seven years in a row and things only get worse, it's like, well, after a while, I've given you all this. It might not be valuable advice, but advice. And you're not seeking professional help. So like. I, I don't know. I think the film kind of captures that, not animosity, but that sort of just uncomfortableness in not being able to move on in either direction of accepting or not. Right. And then imagine that you you want to be support. The sister wants to be supportive. It has allowed for six years for her daughter to share a birthday with this mm-hmm. boy. And this boy is struggling to say the least. And I mean, I can imagine being like, you know what? We're not going to have, we're not going to lie about the birthday anymore. You know what? I get it. I get it. And I don't like that. I don't like that I relate to that bitchy lady, but that shit's real. (laughs) Well, yeah, I need to add a caveat. I guess the woman that says um, she knows plenty of poor disadvantaged women, that was a pretty bitchy comment. That was (laughs) so... That one's one's inexcusable. I think I'm more thinking about the interactions with the sister, but that's still, even on a rewatch, that's an aggressive thing to say to somebody's face. No, and the camera angle was perfect on that because it was like they were all standing and Mm -hmm. uh, the mom was sitting and yeah, I thought that was good. And then the... And then the and then the the cousin, the sister's daughter, who was like, "Your dad doesn't love you," and he like she was saying like really jacked up stuff to him, like yeah, poor Samuel, like he's already trying to defeat the Babadook. You don't need your cousin to pile on. (laughs) He's got a lot on his plate at the moment. (laughs) He does, poor second grader, however old he is. (laughs) Golly, I think though that. That that instance is interesting because, you know, it was like my initial reaction, of course, was like, that's a pretty fucked up thing to say to anybody. But then you start to think about like, well, she probably didn't come. That little girl probably did not come up with that herself. Like, where do you think that she is getting the fact that, you know, all these details about his life and his relationships? Like, I don't know. I think her mother probably has a big mouth and has been saying some uh, some less than colorful things when. Samuel and Amelia are not around, but that furthermore just shows like, I don't know. I think that that scene again is like representative of the fact that there's not a lot of wasted dialogue in the movie. Right. I think that a lot of the interactions, there's, there's something to everything. Um, and even something like that, it's like, yeah, it's a kid being shitty to another kid. But I think furthermore, it kind of just reinforces the relationship between kids and their parents and like, mm-hmm kids are going to be a reflection of their parents to a certain extent, especially, you know, at such an impressionable age. Uh-huh. Um, so I just thought that that was a, uh, an interesting, interesting little, you know, portrayal of kids and parents and that relationship from the other side of things when you're not focusing on, you know, the protagonists. So I guess in moving from some of the psychological aspects of things, like for the more traditional horror elements, did you find that they were effective outside of them just being like emphasizing of the psych of the psychological side of things? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't think I'm telling you the two scariest parts for me were when I thought she was going to drown him and 
when they were in the bathtub and then when she was masturbating and he <laughs> walked in <laughs> and he ran in <laughs> he ran in you know and then so i guess what kind of confused me was when the Duke finally materialized and was kind of like chasing her through the house um she just acted so helpless at points that i and i didn't really i couldn't I just kept judging her. I don't know. I get in. I think maybe it's maybe men do this too, but like um, I get really opinionated when I see people in peril and how they're responding to peril. Like, mm-hmm. because I maybe as a way to prepare myself for the future or something, but like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she was on the floor in her bedroom and the Baba Duke like came through the, the fireplace. Yeah. yeah. The chimney. And it was, and she was on the and she was like oh, she was like Mo, i didn't understand what was going on like i it was just disturbing and but not it was distur- i just was like why can't you just stand up and walk i don't know i just was confused by her behavior i'll say that yeah you know i think that i cuz i had the same thoughts the first time i watched it but on this rewatch it kind of further solidified my point or my opinion rather that you know it seems like this is all a manifestation in her head and it's allowing her to have a physical thing to blame how she feels internally so in my mind like that scene plays out and it's just her writhing on the floor basically like grief stricken and just completely overwhelmed emotionally probably having the same type of anxiety attack that her son was having earlier in the movie And this is the only way that she can really justify that in terms of like, oh, well, the reason I feel this way is because there's a creepy creature crawling down my chimney or something like that. That's a good Um, point. That's like, I don't know. That's just an interpretation that I had the second time around. Because the first time I watched the movie, I definitely felt the same way. I was just like, you got a child you need to be worrying about? Like, let's let's put a little pep in that step. (laughs) Let's jump up and be out. Right. No, that's such a good point. That's a really good point. And that kind of helps me understand it better. And then, so I guess I'm forgetting, you know, that's when the Babadook enters her. Is that correct? Or is. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I think that's the instance where then, you know, it literally like goes down her throat and then the film kind of hits that trajectory of it going from a mix of like psychological moments to, you know, seeing him in the shadows or seeing him in the neighbor's apartment. And then it becomes like a full fledged possession movie, essentially not unlike, you know, the final act of uh, hereditary, which you mentioned earlier. Right. Yeah. And so then they end up in the basement and the boy uh, (laughs) subdues his mother. (laughs) (laughs) You can say it. He fucks her up pretty good. (laughs) Every um, parent's worst nightmare. Oh my gosh. And he's like, I love you, mommy. I love you. I know you're still in there. <laughs> Meanwhile, he uses his weapons of war against her. His oh catapult. And I think he stabs her too, does he not? I don't In between remember. crossbowing her. Oh yeah, my gosh. She gets pretty jacked up. And then she pukes up the Duke after just pleading, after just the boy pleading with her. She has a hallucination again about I don't remember how that went. Well, she sees the husband, right? That's the instance you referenced earlier where he gets basically decapitated, um, which. No, 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 Jay. That's not decapitation. That decapitation to me is when you lose your head at your neck. This was like lateral, like you're seeing the top. Oh, my. Half his head fell off. Like, lateral separation. La- <laughs> Let's use the medical terminology yeah (laughs) ear to ear like oh my god and then it's like well how does that happen in a car accident but anyway no that's fine that was good to me that was that was awesome horror movie shit because i was not expecting that at all at all well that was kind of one of the last things i wanted to touch upon is just like this is a movie that only cost about i think two million dollars to make and there's so many moments in the movie that i think make it look like it's at least double that budget or like a five or $10 million uh, budgeted movie. And so few of the instances I think have to do with the Babadook himself. If anything, I think the Babadook is probably like the most lo-fi look of the movie. Like when he's scurrying around on the ceilings, it kind of looks, I don't know, to me it looks a little janky or whatnot, but I think the instances that are capturing 
like the furthermore of the state that like she's in with her uh, insomnia and her psychosis, essentially, like there are so many little moments that capture that so well. Like those, there's two or three moments where she basically it's a top down shot of her falling into bed. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like is capturing what I would assume like a sleep paralysis or something like that, where you're powerless, but your body is still moving and all these things. And then that's the same instance of when they show the husband, you know, getting the top of his head chopped off, where he kind of like glides from the shadows out to the forefront. And then, you know, you see the top of his head go, but it's not done up in like a traditional sense almost. It's kind of like you see obviously him being decapitated to a certain extent, but it's not like gratuitous, if that Mm-mm. makes sense. Like it's disturbing, but there's not a lot of buildup to it. There's not blood everywhere. It's not mm-hmm. her screaming. It's just like very matter of fact, which I think we talked about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of the way that everything is sort of like, yeah, this is her reality. Um, and not having a lot of maybe traditional glitz and glam of big scare scenes kind of sells that in a way that's more dreamlike. Absolutely. I had no idea it was that low of a budget. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. And that, I mean, I thought the, um, like the production design and lighting was so good. Like the, how they colored the house. And I just, I really liked how it, you, you mentioned earlier that you thought they lived, I had not, I didn't, you said they lived in poverty and I had not conceived of that. I was like, like, cause that's a much larger house than mine. So to me, they, <laughs> To be, it's a much larger uh, house than my apartment. So, <laughs> granted, I don't have roaches maybe coming out of the walls. That's true. That's true. But uh, no, I, it, I just really liked just the atmosphere it created. I think it maintained the tone throughout the entire thing. It never felt like even the ending that was kind of, even when it was like bright at the end, like where there's the denouement and like weird, everything's kind of okay. It still kept the tone and the whole, I just, I'm obsessed with how they ended it. I love that the Duke exists and you have to keep it safe and in the basement. And I love that. I think that's great. Well, yeah, let's talk about the ending then and kind of wrapping up. I mean, the the ending was one that, you know, the first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, I understand she this this uh, manifestation of grief now is like something that you can never escape, right? You can learn to live with it, but you have to learn to live with it. Otherwise, we've seen the ramifications if you don't know how to live with it, basically. Um, but, you know, on a rewatch... I was viewing it in a different, again, talking about like the ambiguity of whether or not it's actually something real or if it is just like her way of coping. I don't know. There was something about the ending this time that stood out to me in the fact that like her son, who's been obsessed with magic the entire time, like we've given plenty of instances of that. The fact of the matter is, is that he does a magic trick at the end that he should not be able to do. Right. I mean, he puts I forget what it is. It's a glass or something. And then he take he pulls the lid off and there's a pigeon there or something or a dove, I think. And it's like this very uh, idyllic, beautiful day out. It's sunny. They're both happy. They're embracing. She's expelled the Babadook in a pile of black bile. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, like that's so fantastical that I didn't think that that was actually real on Mm. this rewatch. I kind of viewed it as being like, this is her fantasy or an extension of her fantasy of what she wants her life to be like. I don't know. Maybe that's a little more of a... Uh, well, that's a so bleak, depressing, Jane. Yeah. That's, that's the depressing It's a little depressing. <laughs> no, that's a good point, though. Yeah, I thought it was... I mean, I have questions like, how did they learn that the Babadook liked worms? How did... <laughs> how You know, they've... She says, doesn't that she says she tells him to stay out of the basement. So Samuel still isn't allowed in the basement. And then he has to leave the house while she goes down there. I mean, really, maybe she just needs to go to therapy once a week instead of feed the Baba Duke. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> well, one thing, you know, that was one thing that I thought the film could have. You know, I don't have a lot of criticisms of the movie, but I think maybe one element that we could have, you know, going against what I said earlier of like, it does a good job of not beating anyone drum too much throughout the movie and kind of 
having this brisk pace. There's one instance where, you know, about three-fourths of the way through the movie, she goes finally to see a doctor after, you know, only after Samuel has basically what seems to be like a seizure, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is probably the scariest scene in the movie for me in Mm. terms of like, you have that, it's a day, you know, sun-scorched horror is, I find, it's very rare, right? You know, obviously there's an over-reliance on shadows and these things, which is not a bad thing typically, but like, if you're able to make a scene that's scary and it's daylight out, like that is ultimately 10 times more terrifying to me. And so for that scene to play out where, you know, they're driving and it's, you know, a beautiful day out and it's sunny. And then like Samuel screaming in the background of terms of like, Oh, it's in the car or I see it or get out and this and that. And then has that seizure. Like that is terrifying in and of itself. But then they have that sequence afterwards when she goes to the doctor and she wants something for him to sleep And he tries to get her in to see a psychiatrist, but she can't see one for a couple of weeks or something. And like, what's the easy solution? Oh, well, we can write you a prescription now. Uh Um, I I thought the film maybe could have had another instance that kind of like sells that point a little deeper, right? Sort of like how sometimes mental health services, no matter the country, it can take a while to actually like get people the help they need, the specific help, rather than what is essentially kind of like a Band-Aid or short-term fix. Um, in terms of that, but that was one element that I thought like, I could have used maybe another instance of kind of just solidifying that point, maybe a little, a little more. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that they should use this film, um, as a warning to nations worldwide that if we don't take care of each other in our mental health and provide support services in a timely fashion, that we will all have monsters in our basement that cause us to murder our dogs and scare our children. <laughs> we'll all have our own Baba Dukes to deal with and grapple That's with. That's right. So that would be an interesting, I would love to see like a series of films where the Baba Duke shows up in different families and like what's going on. And because it's kind of like a poltergeist, right? Like, so in, in folk- folklore, the poltergeist comes n- normally with like, teenage age children or like when there's kind of like jacked up stuff going on in the home so there's kind of some thread some some threads in there maybe i'll write a script for a second baba duke there you go baba duke two duke and the bob (laughs) (laughs) it's not good guys sorry We'll workshop it. It's there's a good there's a good core idea there, but we'll workshop the title maybe just a little bit. There's no bad ideas in brainstorming. No, there are not exactly. Shit. <laughs> but yeah, I guess you know, in kind of wrapping up, uh, were there any elements of Baba Duke that stood out to you that we didn't touch upon? Whether it be you know the scares or the handling of motherhood in this film, maybe dabbling in a facet of that that's rarely explored in uh, horror films or films in general i just want to reiterate that like if if anyone listening watches this movie again truly everything the mother does is wrong in regards to caring for her child's mental health i just i just couldn't get over it i just i just was like well no wonder this is happening to you lady like i just i had a hard time finding empathy for her um it very much carries it like a cautionary tale, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, you can view it through that lens because it's like, well, this is what happens if you leave a lot of these things unchecked. You know, that's maybe another facet of the film that I would have liked to have seen is that her trying to get the proper services to deal with that and kind of like accepting or just, you know, it probably seemed very hopeless to her based upon the fact that like that brief glimpse that we get of her reaching out for help to the medical community it's like well i can put you on a list but it's like in reality very rarely is it like oh yeah this clearly when you get to this point in this character's arc it's like it's more a matter of hours rather than like days or weeks or months Mm. it's like you need help now right Um, so i think that in that capacity like it makes for a very interesting look at like various forms of crisis or crises right but yeah i was very excited once again, you know, to chat with you about a movie that deals with a lot of subject of heavy subject matter, I would say. And I was happy to find a movie that, you know, dabbles in motherhood and the horrors, whether they be, you know, supernatural or not, in a way that is not as regularly explored, right? I think that 
it'll be interesting to see, and we kind of briefly touched upon this, like over the last 10 years or so, seeing the different types of representation and getting to see more women be in the director's chairs to give us films or scripts that, you know, are approaching subject matter or what might be viewed as tropes from over, you know, the decades of horror in a new way or a new light. And yeah, as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you for a daily horror habit. Oh, Jay, thank you so much for having me on. This is truly um, my pleasure and a delight. And I love learning more about horror from you. And I so enjoy it. And I can't wait to be back and talk more about how parent, horrible parenting causes <laughs> monsters. <laughs> Maybe maybe we'll pick something a little more lighthearted for next time, or maybe we'll just go deeper down this. Let's uh, just keep going. This, this dark, this dark horror rabbit hole that we've uh, found Let's ourselves. Let's do in. a Cronenberg movie next time, or something. Ooh, absolutely, you're talking my language, so we'll definitely we'll uh, we'll compare lists and find something like that next time. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod, or give me a follow at Not Funny Jay. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.